evening we'll be in Luke chapter 1, so let me invite you to turn in your Bibles there, Luke chapter 1. When Adam rebelled against God, sin was like a red dye in a pool of water. Adam and Eve questioned God's authority and tried to exalt themselves to a place that was equal with God. And since that day, every human being has been under the curse of sin. And that means that work is more toilsome than it was in the garden. That means that labor and delivery is much more painful for women. That means that that women have a desire to usurp their authority. That means that every child is born in sin. And that means that suffering exists in a world that is in rebellion against its Creator. That this, this sin, like the dye, permeates every part of the culture, much like the dye permeates the water. The entry of sin into the world also means that every person is appointed to die. And it means that Satan and his host of followers will wrestle with God's people for as long as he has the ability to do so. And they have the ability to do so. And that means that that evil will continually be in our world. It will be continually in our country and in our state and in our city and in our neighborhood and in our home and even in our own hearts. Our world goes on like a broken record. It keeps playing back the same horrific sound of birth, suffering, pain, evil, conflict, sin, and death. We seem to be in an endless loop and there seems to be no answer for what's going on. If, through one man, sin entered the world, then who will break the curse? How will we ever get out of this endless loop? Seemingly, continuous loop that goes on and on. It's a pretty bleak picture until one man comes to break the curse. And he doesn't come with great fanfare, great fanfare. only a few shepherds and um, wilderness uh, messengers announce his arrival. He isn't born in a palace of gold like you would expect a king to be born. He's born outside with the animals. He isn't treated like a king by the general populace. Just a few followers submit to him and many others follow out of intrigue. He doesn't own much. In fact, he's compelled to borrow most of what he needs to survive. Remember, he borrows a boat to get across the water. He, he borrows food when he's feeding the 5,000, right? Or, or he, he, he gets food as a gift from a, from a young boy. He borrows a donkey in order to, to go into his triumphal entry. He even borrows a room to eat his final meal. And he's even buried in a borrowed tomb one that is owned by someone else. You see, he came to be a king, and yet he doesn't look like a king. In fact, he only wore a crown once, and it wasn't the kind of crown that a king normally wears. He was a humble man, born in a small town, and yet he was not just any man. His birth had been planned for ages. And although his entrance into the world was in many ways mildly unspectacular, his birth actually carried eternal significance because it actually 
was the first thing that was needed in order to break the curse of sin, which was for God to come into the world in human flesh. God comes in human flesh. No sinful human could try his best and result have the result being to appease God's wrath. None of us could come and be accepted by God, fulfill all His demands. It had to be someone who was sinless. It had to be the God-man. And so, when the fullness of time had come, God sent His forth. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law and under the curse of sin, and that he might receive, and that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. This man is Jesus. And this man is the Messiah, the promised one, the one who had been planned for ages. And his birth is what we're going to look at this morning in Luke uh, 1, verses 26 through 38. The, the announcement of his birth. Let me read our passage for us, beginning in verse 26. This is the Word of God. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth also has conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. God's power and purpose are displayed through the infinite Son of God being conceived in a finite woman. This is how God displays His infinite power and purpose. By, by um, bringing about the infinite Son of God, conceiving the infinite Son of God in a finite woman. In order to show you God's power in this virgin birth, of which we are familiar, and what it means for us, I would like to answer four questions. But before we do that, let's just look at the setting of the passage. Notice verse 28. And coming in, this angel said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And then verse 30, uh, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. In verse 28, the angel says, Greetings, favored one. Uh, also, translated in the King James Version as, Hail thou that art highly favored. And this is where the Catholics get the idea of Hail Mary full of grace. As if 
They take it to mean that Mary is full of grace, that she can dispense grace. And their reasoning that is that if Jesus were perfect, then the only way that He could be perfect is if His virgin mother was perfect. But if that's true, then if we want to continue that line of reasoning, then what would we have to say about Mary's parents? Right? And they both have to be perfect as well. And their parents would have to be perfect and so on. And, and obviously that doesn't work. And the whole doctrine of grace dispensing is based on a misunderstanding, I think, of this word, favor. And the idea here in verse 28 is not the one who earned favor. Notice the, the, the language there. Greetings, favored one. And then notice at the end of verse 30, for you have found favor. That's the idea. Mary, you are not full of grace in that you dispense it, but you're, you're a recipient of grace. You have found favor with God. This same phrase is used in Genesis 6-8 of Noah, who found favor with God. And yet no one would argue that Noah was perfect, even, even they who, who espoused this doctrine. And no one would argue that Noah was a dispenser of favor, and yet the same phrase is used of him in Genesis 6-8. No, Noah was a recipient of God's grace, as is Mary the phrase translated found favor actually comes from one Greek word which means to receive grace freely. Turn, in to, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We see the same Greek word used here. And I think if we look in the context of how this is being used by the Apostle Paul, then it, it will become clear how, how Luke is using it in, in Luke chapter 1. So Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. One of the great passages on, on God's calling of us and choosing us in salvation, Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. Okay, so there's, there's the idea of grace. Now notice, here's the, here's the words that we get from, that are the same in Luke. Which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So, He freely bestowed. That word bestowed is the one that comes from the same Greek word which means highly favored. And we understand from the context here that, that we are receiving something that we don't deserve. Right? We're, we're getting something. That's what grace is. It's not earned. It's unearned favor. You can turn back to Luke chapter 1. And so based on how we see this word being used by Paul in Ephesians 1, we have to take this word in Luke 1 to have the same idea. And that is not that she is a dispenser of favor, she's a dispenser of grace, but rather a recipient of one. It is bestowed upon her. She received something that she did not deserve, something that she did not merit. And further, proof that she was not perfect, that she was uh, favored one in the sense of receiving grace is found in verse 47. So turn to Luke 1, 47. Here is Mary's song when she praises the Lord. And she says here at the end of verse 46, My soul exalts the, exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. What is Mary doing here? She's calling God her Savior. Now, if someone were perfect, why would they need a Savior? Why would they call out to God as their Savior. And yet, this is what Mary does. And so, we, we understand that, that Mary is not perfect, 
but rather that she is a recipient of grace just like all of us. Verse 28, uh, the angel gives her an encouragement at the very end of the verse. says, The Lord is with you. Just as God was with Moses and God was with Gideon, God is with Mary. And God is going to be with Mary at a very important time in her life. It's likely that Mary was just a young teenager, possibly even younger than that. The, the average age for a young Jewish girl to be betrothed to her husband was between 12 and 14. And so Mary was not like we often see in the pictures and stuff, probably not in her early 30s or something like that. She probably was just a young girl that's just beyond the, the age of puberty. And so what would people think if they saw such a young girl who's not yet been married, who is now pregnant? They're certainly going to make claims against her and that maybe she had committed some sort of act of immorality. How else could you explain this situation? And so she needs to be reminded of this important truth. God is with you, Mary. People are going to make all sorts of crazy claims about what's going on, but God is with you. So that kind of gives us a little bit of the setting and I just wanted to highlight a couple of the, the points that, that uh, we, we might not, we probably aren't going to talk about here when we get to these questions. So let me ask and answer four questions about this passage. All right, number one Could God have used any woman to be the mother of Jesus? Could he, use any, could he have used any woman? Well, notice verse 27 that she was a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. And we know that she had to be a virgin. She, that Jesus was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7 that He would be born of a, a virgin, that the Christ, the Messiah, would be born of a virgin. And so she had to be a virgin. It couldn't be just any woman who, who was uh, Jesus' mother. Secondly, she had to be a Jew in the line of David. In chapter 3, um, we, we learn that Jesus is in the line of David even here. Uh, one of the things that he is said to have done in chapter 1, verse 32, at the end of the verse, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So so he comes from the, the line of David, and she had to be born of a Jewish... Uh, he had to be born of a Jewish woman, and not only was his father Joseph from David's throne, from the line of David, but also his mother. And Mary's genealogy in Luke 3 will kind of point that out, that he is coming from not only the line of David, but he's actually from all the way back to Adam and shows his humanity there. Very important to the life of Christ. Thirdly, uh, could God have used anyone? Well, I think he had to, to, to choose a woman who was going to marry a Jew in the line of David. Right? That's why verse 32 says, of the throne of his father David. Jesus... Jesus' legal father had to be in David's line so that he could fulfill the prophecies of this Messiah who would come through that line. The genealogy in Matthew clearly shows the genealogy of Joseph. It shows that Jesus' legal father descended from David and therefore he could rightly sit on David's throne as he will in the Millennial Kingdom. I think she also had to be a humble servant. Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
Mary calls herself the bond slave of God, indicating that she will do whatever her master asks of her. And her her statement is underscored when you understand the intense situation. She she likely thought that Joseph wouldn't believe the story. How could he believe something like this? This has never happened before. Perhaps he would abandon her, or even worse. And even in Matthew's gospel, it says that he had he had plans to divorce her quietly. Right. So she she had this idea that possibly it would lead to her stoning because the, there could be accusations against her her fidelity. And yet she willingly said, I'm going to obey the Lord, His command that comes through this, this angel, and I'm going to submit to your plans. Mary had to be a humble servant. Anyone less than that would have abandoned this idea long before, she, uh, long before uh, Christ could be born. Mary's service to God is not a cringing slavery, but a submission to God that characterizes all believers, that she recognizes her inadequacy before God. I am a bond slave of you. I'm willing to do whatever you tell me to do, no matter what the consequences, no matter how people will view me. But this story is not about Mary, really. This is about Mary's child. So the second question I want to answer from the text is, who is this child? Who is this child? Well, look at verse 31. First, He is the Son of Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. So, He is a human son born of Mary. Secondly, He is the Savior. Look at the end of the verse. And you shall name Him Jesus. Which means what? He will save His people from their sins. He is the Savior. His very name carries that promise as Matthew one twenty one tells us. Not only is He the Son and the Savior, but in verse 32 we see that He is great. Not great like John is. Remember John, of all people who are born of women, there are, there are none that are better than John. Luke, uh, I think it's Luke 2 says that. And yet, Jesus is greater than John. John is called the prophet of the Most High. Look at what Jesus is called in verse 32. And He will be called the Son of the Most High. Not a prophet of the Most High. Not one of God's servants. He is the Messiah. The Son of the Most High. He is God. Turn to John chapter 5. Let me show you why, why it's so important for us to understand that Jesus is God. Why is it so important to understand? How is it that Jesus can be the Son of God and God? How, how are those connected? Well, John 5 verse 17 Jesus is teaching here. And and his his opponents are are they have a problem with how he refers to himself. Verse seventeen, but he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. So in that statement you hear him talking about God his father, but he's also talking about himself, that I am working. Look at verse 18, how they respond. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but He also was calling God His Father, making Himself equal with God. Well, Jesus never said that, I am equal with God. There's no record of Him saying that. But instead, He calls God His Father, and they take that to mean that He's meaning He's equal with God. Why is that? 
Well, it's not just that, that Jesus is the Son of God. It's that Jesus is God's own Son. And as He says here in verse 17, God is His own Father. He speaks of God as My Father. Now, the Jews would tend to speak of Him as Our Father. Whenever they would speak of Him, they would say Our Father. If a person said My Father, they're saying something different. They're saying that, that they actually are the Son of God, that they actually are God, that they're equal with God. And, and this, this is how the Jews understood it. And if you understand uh, some of the ancient Near East, you'll understand that when a person was a son of someone, it means that they take on the characteristics of that person. So, just as by way of illustration, James and John are called the, the sons of thunder. Right? It doesn't mean that their father's name was Thunder or that he was able to make really loud noises that sounded like Thunder. It means that they, were, they took on the characteristics of, being, uh, of a fiery personality, right? Thunder. And, and the same thing is true when Jesus says that I am the Son of God, that I am taking on the very characteristics of God because I am God. And so that's why the, the Jews understood it in this way. So Jesus is, turn back to Luke 1, He is the Son of Mary. He's the Savior. He's greater than John. He is the Son of the Most High. That is, He is God. And verse 32, we touched on that He is the future theocratic King. That, that the Lord will give Him, the end of the verse says, the throne of His father, David. That means that He will reign both in the Millennial Kingdom and the Eternal State as the King on David's throne. Um, we see this in the, the next part of the verse. He'll reign over the house of Jacob. Okay, This is the idea of reigning over Israel in the kingdom. And that His kingdom will have no end. That's talking about the eternal kingdom. It's not going to end really once the 1,000 years end. It goes on into the eternal state where He is the eternal King. So who is this child? He is the Son of Mary, the Savior, the Great One, the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, that is, and then the future theocratic King. Question number three. How did the virgin birth happen? Verses 34 to 37. This is Mary's question. She's confused. Verse 34, how can this be? Right? How, how can there possibly be a conception in a virgin? This doesn't seem to make sense. Now, she's not asking in unbelief like Zechariah, as we saw last week. We know Zechariah was asking unbelief because he was struck dumb by the, the angel. And the angel talks of him as he is speaking in unbelief. He seems to be not trusting in what God can do in God's power. Mary trusts in God's power, but doesn't understand the logistics of it. How can this possibly happen? Because this has never happened before. And the explanation comes by Gabriel, the angel. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. What does this mean that the Holy Spirit will come upon her? Some people have argued, and I would say theological liberals would argue that this is some kind of cohabitation that Mary has with the Spirit of God. But but what we need to keep in mind is turn back to verse 23. Um, sorry, that's that's not the passage I'm looking for. I think it's Matthew 1. 23. Yes, Matthew 1.23. Sorry about that. Matthew 1.23. Here's the prophecy 
of Jesus and Mary, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So what we learn here is that Mary is not having some sort of immoral relationship. Obviously, not having a relationship, an intimate relationship with a man, but certainly not with a with the Spirit either. Verse 24, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth. So this is not only a virgin conception, but a virgin birth. So that means that she had no intimate relationship with any creature of any kind. Okay, so not with it's not some sort of pagan, um, half-God, half-human sort of idea, half-human offspring that comes from this uh, carnal union. That's not what's going on at all. It is that Mary has the child of Jesus conceived within her womb apart from any cohabitation with any, any creature. This is a, super, a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit whereby He caused Mary to become pregnant without having an intimate relationship of any kind. In verse 35, we see that the, over, the, the power of God will overshadow you, the angel says. This is the idea that, that, um, that, that the holy, powerful presence of God is going to come upon her, much like the glory cloud would come upon the temple or the tabernacle. It's going to overshadow you. And, that, and that's how you're going to conceive. Notice the result of this overshadowing at the end of verse 35. The holy child shall be called the Son of God. That, that, that actually conceived in you is the Son of God uh, in human flesh. And if Mary was unsure about how this could happen, the angel gives her reassurance in verse 36. The reason you can know this has happened because God has worked in a powerful way in your relative Elizabeth. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. Remember we saw her? She, had, she did not have any children. She was barren. And then she was beyond the age of bearing child, children. And so it was really, from a human perspective, impossible that Elizabeth would become pregnant, and yet she does. And so the angel says, Listen, Mary, you don't know this, but I'm telling you that Elizabeth is pregnant. She's now six months pregnant, even though she is advanced in her years. Just as it's impossible for her to conceive, so is it is impossible for you, a virgin, to conceive unless God intervenes. And uh, so then in verse 37, uh, we have the similar statement to what we find in Genesis 18 when Sarah questions the angel and it says, nothing will be impossible with God. This seems to be the direct answer to Mary's question. How, how can this happen? How is this virgin birth possible? Well, here's the answer. Nothing is impossible with God. Question number four. Why was it necessary for Christ to be born of a virgin? Why was it necessary? And I want to give five reasons for why it was necessary that Christ was born of a virgin. Number one, to affirm that the Scriptures are true to affirm that the Scriptures are true. We have Old Testament prophecies, specifically Isaiah 7.14, that says the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And if He's not born of a virgin, what does that say about the validity of the Scriptures? Right? They're of no value. Once, there, once there's a mistake in one area of the Scriptures, then how can we trust any of it? 
And so, in order to affirm the credibility of the Scriptures, Christ had to fulfill this prophecy. He had to be born of a virgin. Now, thinking about these next two answers to this question, we need to recognize that when a child is conceived through the normal process of uh, procreation, a new person is produced and Adam's sin and guilt are transferred to that person. So, through the normal process of procreation, a man and a woman come together and, and in that woman's womb is produced a new person and a person who receives the guilt of Adam. So, so keep that in mind now as we think about these next two responses to this question. Why was it necessary for Christ to be born? First, in order to affirm the Scriptures. Second, the virgin birth explains how Christ could be fully God and fully man. How, how could it be that Christ was fully God and fully man? Think about it this way. What if God created Jesus in heaven? the man Jesus, and then sent Him down to earth. If that happened, we would have a hard time seeing that He was fully human, right? Because He wasn't born of a woman. He was born in heaven somehow. He was created in heaven. And so we would ask the question, how can this man be descended from Adam? How can he be tempted by sin? Okay, what what about the other extreme? What if God caused Jesus to be born of two parents? a father and a mother. And we would have a hard time seeing that He was fully God. How could this be since His origin was like ours in every way? He was born of a mother and a father. And so what the virgin birth does is it shows how Jesus can be both fully God and fully man. Do you see? That He wasn't produced through the normal process of procreation. You see, in procreation, a new person is produced. Now, now you've got to think carefully with me. And this is a little bit of theology, and this, this will do us well. Okay? When was the person of Christ created? Okay? He wasn't created. He is uncreated. He's the Creator. That was a trick question. And Jesus says in John 8.44, Before Abraham was born, I am. I always have been. Christ has always existed. He has always existed as a singular person. Eternally. He is the Son of God eternally. So, what would happen through the normal process of procreation if a new person is produced? Now you have an eternally existent person, Christ, And now a new person, and now you have a a dual personality. You have two persons in one body, and it doesn't work. Christ always existed, and so what the virgin birth does is it shows how He can be fully God and fully man. Does that make sense? The, The Scriptures teach very clearly that He was not two persons. That He already existed before He was conceived. Rather, He was one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. Alright? Number three. This is the third response to to the question, why did He have to be born of a virgin? Number three, the virgin birth makes it possible for Christ to be fully human, but not to inherit the sin of Adam. 
Okay, one of the things I mentioned earlier, and I said this briefly, so I'll just re- review here, that in the normal process of procreation, when a man and a woman, woman come together, they produce a new person and the sin of Adam is transferred to that new person. But with a virgin birth, birth the sin of Adam is not transferred because there's not a new person uh, that's coming into being. Adam's sin and guilt is transferred on to to a person, a new person, a child, through the biological father. Jesus would have, if He had a biological father, He would have Adam's sin and guilt imputed to Him, just like we do. But Jesus broke the pattern of of humans being sinful because He didn't have a biological father. And so while Jesus can be a descendant of Adam... Right? His mother was from Adam. He can still be fully human, yet he avoids the transference of sin and guilt that would have come through his father, Adam. Now keep in mind when we say that the sin comes through the biological father, don't think that the mother is perfect in this. Okay? And you know that for those who are married, right? That the mother's not perfect. And um, so the point is, is that there's a representative guilt that comes sin and guilt that comes down. Just as one man sinned, sin entered into the world and that passes down through the biological father. And so death passed to all men. Uh, but, but as we w- will find out uh, as we continue to study is that just that through one man sin entered the world, so through one man everyone can be made righteous. That is, everyone who trusts in Christ. So does that make sense? Through the process of procreation, you have a new person being formed and you have the sin and guilt being transferred. With the virgin birth, it's so critical that it happens this way so that he can avoid both of those things. Another person being uh, produced and uh, the transference of sin and guilt. Number four, fourth reason why the virgin birth is necessary is that it reminds us that our salvation is full of grace. That, that, or I could say it this way, it's all of grace. Do you realize that there's nothing particularly deserving about Mary? There are probably countless Jewish girls who qualified, who would have qualified to be Jesus' mother. That is, that she was a virgin, that she was was going to marry someone within the line of, of David. So what was it about Mary? It wasn't that God saw something special in her. Certainly she had faith and dedication, but she had nothing to offer as she acknowledges in her song. And that's an illustration of what it's like for us to be chosen by God. And we don't offer anything to God that, wow, you, you, you look like you have some great potential. But God just chooses us on the basis of His own free will, on the basis of His own choice. It reminds us that salvation is all of grace. Number five, it reminds us that our salvation is a supernatural work of God. Salvation is a supernatural work of God. Do you realize that, that no human effort any human accomplishment can produce our own salvation. We couldn't pull all of our resources and our wisdom together as humanity and say, let's come up with a way to save mankind from their sin. We wouldn't be able to do it. It's a supernatural work of God. So while the virgin birth came through humanity, that is through the Virgin Mary, it is completely of God. 
And that's what that's the same thing that is true about our salvation. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. They have to be born again. They have to be born of from above, of the Spirit. It's something that God has to work in them. Nothing is impossible with God. While we can't come to God on our own, God can accomplish the work of salvation in us because nothing is impossible with God. The virgin birth is not about a woman. It's about a child who miraculously was formed within the womb of a humble Jewish girl. And this Savior existed eternally, and yet He became a member of the human race. And because of that, He's now able to break the curse of sin that's on this world. And even the most spiritual human could not do that. The best of us cannot save ourselves from our sin, let alone anyone else. Only God can. Only God can do it by coming in human flesh. Even God the Father can't save us from our sin. Apart from the, the incarnation, the bringing of Himself, the Son of God, into human flesh. In order for God's wrath to be satisfied, God the Father wasn't looking for a sinful human who would do their best to appease Him. He required perfection. And He would not accept for a sacrifice for our sin. He would not accept a lame sacrifice or a blind or a spotted sacrifice, which is what we would all be if we were sacrificed for the sake of sin. The sacrifice that God demands is perfect. And it has to be perfect in order to be sufficient for the sin of the whole world. And that's who Jesus is. He is that perfect sacrifice. He is that perfect law keeper. He was a perfect sacrifice and He humbled Himself as a human to rescue you from the wrath of God. And do you realize that each one of us was responsible for His death? That even our sins alone, individually, are enough to bring about the full and righteous wrath of God upon ourselves. And yet, Jesus took that wrath so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty of sin and so that we could be counted as righteous. And in Christ's coming to the earth and dying, we get two great things, forgiveness and justification. Now, it's one thing for a king to forgive our debt. When we are opposed to a king, we are his enemies. It's one thing for him to forgive our debt. Now we're in standing with everyone else. But it's another thing for him to invite us to his table, to invite us to be a part of his family. And that's what God did. Not only did he forgive us of our sins, remove the penalty of sin, but he also brought us into a place of a right standing before him. Not through any righteousness that we had done, but, but on the basis of Christ's finished work. And so we have a choice to make. We can either live for ourselves and fail to submit to God, constantly pay for our own sin in hell forever, or we can have the sacrifice and righteousness of Christ credited to our account. And if that's what we choose, then the Scriptures say that we have to repent and believe in order to receive this forgiveness. The birth of Jesus is an important event in his life, but it's not the most important. As we sing during Christmas time, he was born to die. The importance of his death and resurrection are far more important than his birth. We have a great God with a great plan, and we must submit to him by bowing 
the knee to Him, bowing our hearts to Him. And so for us, whether it be for salvation from God's wrath if we haven't done that, or submission to Him in a life of service, we must give ourselves fully to Him. The story of Jesus is not a cute little fairy tale that gives us warm feelings. It's a story about disputed authority. Who is the real king? Will the real king please stand up? Is it Satan? Is Satan the one who's in control of this world? Or is God the king? He created all things, Jesus. And He has come to this earth to prove that He has power over His universe. To whom will we submit? Let's pray. O great God in highest heaven, we pray that that You would occupy our lowly hearts and own them all and reign supreme and conquer every rebel power. And we recognize that Jesus was the one who made that possible. And it was through His uh, coming to this world and, and being fully human, being able to understand what we're going through, to sympathize with us. We have a great high priest because He knows He knows our trouble. He knows what it feels like to be tempted by sin to the, to the, to the worst possible degree. And yet, He was without sin. And we recognize why the virgin birth is so important, why the virgin conception was so important. We're thankful for um, how You have explained that and even um, predicted that in the Old Testament. And we pray that You would help us to live in light of that, that He is our King, that He will reign clearly as the King in the Millennial Kingdom and in the eternal state to follow. May we submit ourselves fully to Him. Help us to do that in specific ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.